The Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast is sponsored by Beer Edge. I'm Andy Crouch, the co-founder of Beer Edge, along with my partner and your podcast host, John Hall. John and I work hard to bring you fresh and insightful content related to the ever-changing world of craft beer. We're passionate about beer and independent journalism. If you're interested in supporting Beer Edge, visit our website, beeredge.com, which is updated regularly with new content, interviews, and articles. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. You can also subscribe to the Beer Edge newsletter on our website. Is there anyone you think that we should be talking to? Please drop us a line at andy at beeredge.com with your thoughts. And as always, thanks for your support. Hi, this is John Hall, and welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. This week, I'm talking with Jennifer Yingling, who is a sixth-generation, soon-to-be owner of the Pennsylvania brewery that bears her family name. More in a moment, but first, I'm happy to tell you that this episode is produced by Beer Edge. Check out BeerEdge.com for articles, podcasts, and to subscribe to the newsletter written by myself and Andy Crouch. Also, be sure to follow Beer Edge on social media at The Beer Edge. So DJ Yingling and Son is the country's oldest operating brewery going back 191 years now. It survived major events over the course of six generations, most notably Prohibition, and really hit its stride in the mid-1980s when Dick Yingling Jr. purchased the brewery from his father and began making Yingling Lager, which is the company's flagship beer and accounts for 80% of overall volume. As the brewery, often referred to as just the family last name, looks to its sixth generation, it is Jennifer, the vice president of operations, and her three sisters, who are poised to take over the brand and continue the family tradition. To stay competitive in a crowded beer marketplace, she says innovation is key. The brewery has continued to release new brands and find new partnerships to stay top of mind with its customers across 22 states. Yangling is also the country's largest craft brewery, as designated by the Brewers Association. But Jennifer is more interested in using the word independent, something the whole company is proud of being, she says. Jennifer spoke to me from the brewery in Pennsylvania, and when your name is on the building, there seems to be an extra layer of responsibility. So I started off by asking her about her earliest memories of being at the family business. Here's our conversation. It's interesting. And when my sisters and I were growing up, and, and I'm the oldest, our dad our dad broke away from the brewery during the, the 70s and the early 80s. And he had a beer distributorship locally here in Pottsville. And, you know, my first really exposure to the industry was, was from the distributor side. And, and it was a small distributorship he had. Um, but, but, you know, my initial memories of the beer business were going to the, the wholesaler warehouse with him and helping him stack cases and, you know, working the hand cart and the cash register. And then um, it wasn't until my early teenage years that, that he became involved in the brewery. He purchased it from his father in 1985 um, that I really started to become more exposed and, and um, understand the beer industry and, and all that it had to offer. So those teenage years, though, spent uh, at, at the brewery after, after your father purchased it from your, from your grandfather, um, what what sort of struck you at the time? You know, I mean, teenage years, we think of them as sort of formidable years and formative years, I should say, and uh, formidable as well uh, for certain things, but certainly formative years. Um, what was it like being a teenager and having a brewery as the family business? 
Yeah, it was my my role and my part-time work at the brewery during those years. I was I worked as a tour guide, um, and at that time, we, we didn't have our museum and our gift shop set up, so we were operating it solely out of the old brewery. And, you know, what I remember most is the, the passion that our consumers and the, the tourists came in with, um, how excited they were to, to see our operation and so hands-on. It's a very unique tour. I, I think you mentioned that you were on it a couple of years ago, but, but yeah. we actually take you right onto the packaging line. At that time, we would take you right into the brew house, and that was the only brewery we had. So we were, we were packaging bottles, cans, kegs. Um, taken down into the tunnels, and their feet were actually getting wet with with beer and sure. And so no no OSHA violations, of course. Yeah, I <laughs> know, I know. Well, that, that was years ago. <laughs> yeah, so just the, the passion of our fans, and, and and I just remember how dedicated our workers were because we were starting to get busy during those years, and they were working long hours, and they were passionate about what what they do, and had a real a real pride in their work. When when you say. Well, I I, 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 I want to get back to, to that that sort of ramping up in the in the mid to, to late eighties, but um, it, it, there's got to be a certain pressure that comes with you know having your last name also be the one of the brewery, especially when people are coming through. And it, it's I think for so many you know heritage brands and and, and long term brands, you know, there's a you know it, it's sort of auspicious in a lot of ways to be connected with the family. Um, or you know, to be the namesake of uh, of, of the brewery. Um, did you get that impression when you first started working there and, and, and giving these tours? Was there sort of this, you know, standing on the shoulders of responsibility, or was it just sort no, of like a, a fun family thing? Um, I wouldn't really say pressure. Um, I think it's taken me time, obviously, from when I was a teenager to to where I am in my career now to understand and appreciate the work ethic and resiliency and the perseverance of not just my family members and ancestry that came before me, but the hard work and dedication of, of the workers who have gotten us to where we are today and also the, you know, the passion of the consumers. So, so I look at it more as, um, as an opportunity, um, really not pressure, not obligation, um, but every day you come in and you learn and you hear stories of, of how the industry used to be. And, and we went through some, some pretty lean times. Um, prohibition, of course, when, when all brewers were going through lean times. Yeah. But, but even in the 50s and 60s, and we were just considered a small local coal region brewery, and, and my great-grandfather and my grandfather, they struggled to make ends meet. So it's, it's more years of, of learning and appreciating what the generations before my sisters and I what they accomplished and how they were steadfast in maintaining the business. Was there, was it always the plan to go into the family business? Did, did you ever think of exploring other paths or? Yeah, I certainly did. I, I, my dad was really good about exposing my sisters and I to the company, but never putting the pressure on and letting us know that there's opportunity here if we were interested and, you know, I certainly, it wasn't until I got into my, my early 20s that I decided that, you know, it was time to come back home to Pottsville and immerse myself into the operations end of it, which is where I found my niche, and really learn from my dad, learn from the, you know, the workers that we have here, and we've, you know, we've got some great folks. We've, we even have multi-generational workers, not just from, from my family side, that have, you know, that have worked here for for decades. So, so that's kind of my history and my path to getting to where I am now. And, and for your sisters as well, was it, I, I, I'm 
I, I don't mean for you to speak on on their behalf uh, you know without them here but I'm I'm I'm, I'm curious cuz you know typically when there's multiple siblings you might have one or two or even three you know break away from the family business we've seen it with other breweries uh, uh, you know generational handoffs um, you know it, it strikes me as sort of unique that your sisters are also involved in the brewery as well and getting ready to sort of take yeah. on this mantle yeah, I mean, we're actually, we're very proud that the four of us are involved in the business today, and I, I think it really makes us even more unique than most businesses, and uh, everyone kind of followed their own path prior to coming into the brewery. Some of them, some of us, you know, we continued our schooling, others went into other industries, um, but however that path led, it eventually obviously got us back here to Pottsville, and we've all kind of molded ourselves um, based off of our our skill sets and our talents and our interests to different areas within the company. And I think that helps, helps make it work even better because Wendy, Wendy deals a lot with sales and marketing uh, and human resources. I've got operations. Debbie works as our employee cultural engagement manager. Cheryl works in order services. So we're, we all have different touch points every day. So in, in essence, we're not necessarily tripping over each other or, or causing redundancy. And, I guess the, the, the plan is that the, the four of you will take over the brewery when your father retires. I, I, yeah. he, he purchased it from his father. Is that the plan for you four right. to that's purchase the, it from him? That's, yeah, that's the typical German way. It doesn't just get handed down. It, it has to be bought out. But um, our, our dad is still very much involved. He's here every day. Um, I don't know that anybody will ever outwork him. And I, you know, as, as far as we're concerned, he's got a lot of years left in him. Okay, so but but that's sort of the... The plan right now, though, is still family ownership. Oh, absolutely. Oh, our our intention is to remain independent well into generations beyond us. That's. I I wonder how much. That's a conversation that that you all have because I I we've seen it with other, um, brewing families that you know are multi generational that at, at some point, um. You know, the a, a new generation decides that this isn't for them, and they 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 sort of give up the ghost. They 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 sell the business to somebody else, or or just decide to 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 close it down. Um, when you have six generations now, and you're looking towards, as you're saying, you know, many future generations to come, is there even a way to ensure family control down the line? Is there? I mean, obviously, like once we're all gone, whatever happens happens, but. It sounds like it's something you're thinking about. I think we've, yes, we've certainly been thinking about it for six generations. And, again, we go back to the hard work and resiliency and the, the success that we've had throughout the years, and it inspires us and gives us greater appreciation um, for what those generations have gone through. And, you know, the we have succession plans in place, and we have every intention of continuing as a, America's oldest brewery, family-owned and operated, and remaining independent for years to come. As... We've seen so many breweries open up in, you know, the last 40 years or so, uh, and certainly, um, you know, in, in, in the U.S. here, we're somewhere around 8,000 or so breweries, um, and a lot of these are, you know, small family-owned businesses, and I, I've had conversations with, uh, you know, small brewers who are, I mean, not doing the, you know, the millions of barrels like, like you all are, but, you know, they're, they're doing 1,500, 2,000 barrels a year, uh, but there's a hope that a lot of them have uh, that one day their kids will take over. And 
what what's often striking to me is when I'm having these conversations with brewers, you know, it, it, the children that they want to take over are about three years old and you know running around and playing on on the brewery floor. As as somebody who has been in the family business and you know seen your grandfather at work and your father at work, um, what do you think is 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 the smart tack for you know brewers to take um, if they do want their children to take over one day? Like what like what are some of the lessons that you've experienced or seen firsthand, you know, that you think could apply to, you know, some of these other brewers that are hoping to, you know, become a multi-generational business like you. Right. Well, I think you have to have realistic expectations. Um, certainly about what the, what the industry looks like on any given day or any given decade. I mean, it's, it's a much different industry today than it was 20 years ago. And my dad will say that when he purchased the brewery in 1985, there were just over 130 breweries across the country, and now there's what you mentioned, over 8,000. So you have to be able to, to adapt and, and innovate, um, have a passion for what you do, have a strong work ethic. And when you look at today's current market, it's, it's really a unique and challenging time for not just any industry and business, but, but the beer industry itself. And, you know, we, we've had to be nimble and adapt certainly over the last couple months because we saw a huge impact on sales from the from the on-premise side of things so we were able to transition our workers and and um you know divert and and work more towards the off-premise side and in cans and bottles and, and different pack types that the consumers were looking for have you seen um so i, I you know I, I aside from you know the the passing of the torch sort of advice though i i am curious about um covid and I wonder if you can go a little bit deeper as to you know, what these last six months have been like for the brewery and, and sort of what changes you've made. Yeah, um, so much of our um, sales, we, we skewed more heavily towards draft, close to 30, it was close to 30% of our business pre-COVID. Wow. So, it, 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 yeah, it impacted us much more than it did, I think, many other brewers. Um, so we, um, you know, we, we were nimble and we were able to spend more of our production time on can packs, bottle bottle packs, um, essentially shut down our keg line for several weeks until on-premise accounts started opening back up. Um, but we saw consumers hit that typical, that, that pantry loading in late March, early April. And we also saw them gravitating towards our core brands, or I guess what you could refer to as comfort brands and the trusted tried and true that they, they, had, um, they had confidence in. So that kind of speaks to the strength of, of our lager brand, which is our flagship, yeah. has been for about 30 years now. It's about 80% of our sales. Um, so, wow. So in that, okay. yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's been, you know, it's, it's done well for us over the years and gotten us to where we are. But uh, at the same time, we've also had the opportunity to innovate. Um, we have our, our Golden Pilsner, which has been out for two years now, and then Flight by Yingling, um, which is unfortunately just rolled out when the pandemic hit. <laughs> Um, but we're start we're starting to see a lift in that, and and the fact that cans are seeing such a huge amount of growth. Um, I believe craft beer about fifty percent of the craft beer dollars come in the off premise channel comes from cans. So being able to introduce our our flight sixteen ounce can this summer was a, a big shot in the arm too. So lager is uh, clearly the flagship by far. Eighty percent is is I mean that's that that's something incredible and. That brand, you sort of alluded to this, um, you know, as things started to take off in the mid '80s. That, that that brand really sort of came into to 
to to life, right? In in the late nineteen eighties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was um, it was uh, eighty seven, I believe. Yeah. I, 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 what's interesting to me when when I when I first read that, um, and then I remember I, I talking with folks at the at the brewery about that is you know for a brewery that is now what one hundred and ninety one years old, um, mm-hmm. having. A flagship that is just a, you know a fraction of that time, uh, or has only been around for a fraction of that time, you know, surprises me because we think of some of the you know the the, the older breweries in the U.S. you know like you know Budweiser or Miller or Pabst you know that have had some of these flagship brands for multiple multiple decades you know if 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 not longer, thirty years strikes me as you know not a ton of time in in in, in the brewery's lifespan. What was it about? that particular beer at that particular moment that really captured the attention of the consumers, do you think? Well, I think, I think that was a period of time where it was really the, the first wave of the craft beer revolution. And at the same time, Jim Cook um, with Boston Beer came out with, with his lager, Boston Lager. Sure, 84, um, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's what consumers were looking for. They were They were tired of the per se, the the mass-produced, yellow, fizzy beers that were out there that didn't have a whole lot of character. And when my dad introduced and formulated lager, he wanted he wanted a beer that had a different flavor profile, a little bit more sweetness to it and, and body. And uh, it was the, the right period of time for that entrepreneurial kind of spirit, and cons- that's what consumers were looking for. And it just uh, really caught hold in the the state college market of Penn State University, the Philadelphia market, Pittsburgh, and they just uh, you know they just they just ate it up, and we you know we've been growing ever since. It, it, it's amazing to me traveling into Pennsylvania, and I, I do frequently, but most bars that you go into, if you just say lager, you're going to get a Yingling put down in front of you, which is not something that happens, as far as I know, in any other state. Um, people ask you, you know, which kind or, you know, what would you like? But, you know, it, that you have this sort of identity um, in Pennsylvania. Is that something that translated when you opened up the brewery in Florida? Or is that a different market and a different beast? It took us some time to, to grab a foothold in the Florida market. And, you know, to, to be upfront with you, when we bought the Tampa Brewery, majority of that beer was transported up into our mid-Atlantic states to satisfy the demand and the need at that time in the late 90s, um, early 2000s, because we just we, we couldn't make enough beer out of our old brewery. Mm-hmm. And until we, until we had the time, it took about two years to build our new brewery, we needed we needed the beer. So um, so before we we opened the southern markets, most of that beer that was produced in Tampa was coming up into our Pennsylvania, Jersey, um, Delaware kind of footprint. Um, and then it, it took us some time. We started slowly opening southern states: Florida, South, North Carolina, um, Georgia. Uh, right now we're in, we're in 22 states total. But um, it took us some time to have consumers recognize who we are. Um, understand that you know we we have two breweries in Pennsylvania and one in Tampa, Florida, and right now Tampa is our largest operating brewery and Florida is our largest market. So it kind of goes along with our whole cultural growth model. Is is we're slow and steady and um, you know very methodical to ensure that we don't lose sight of the quality beers that we produce, and that's kind of what sets us apart. It, that was striking to me that 
it's 22 states because there are breweries half your size, even, you know, a quarter of your size uh, and even less than that, uh, that are have 50 state distribution at this point. Um, and I know there's usually fanfare, um, you know, by some beer fans whenever you open up a new market. I remember a few years ago when you when you pushed into to Massachusetts, there were people who were incredibly excited about it. Um, Ohio, you know, people were thrilled about it. Um, how, how do you decide when is the right time to open up a new state? Um, and is it difficult to sort of practice the restraint of not just doing 50 state distribution? Well, I don't think it's difficult because we kind of <laughs> joke internally that it's taken us 191 years just to get to 22 states. So we're, we want to make sure we leave some for the next generation. But, um, but I think, again, it all plays into our culture. We want to be slow and methodical. We want to be sure we're, we're making the right steps. Um, we tend to go into contiguous states, too, joining states. So we're not, you know, we're not jumping all over the map. Um, we, we pay close attention to our, our capabilities and our capacities um, and then logistics. So we want to be able to produce a case of beer in Pottsville or Tampa, Florida, get it logistically to, to that consumer and yet hit the, the price point that we want to hit so that we're not, you know, and you, you take trucking and transportation in there too. We're, we're just about at our limits of, of how much further we can expand. We've got a couple more states in the New England market that we, we can look at, but, um, you know, that, that's kind of, the, kind of the, the way we digest and do our due diligence when we go into new markets. So there's no, I, I, I've talked with brewers before who, you know, have a five-year, a 10-year plan, um, you know, it's, it's, or for what they hope, you know, would, would, would happen. It, it seems like that's really not like on a whiteboard somewhere at the brewery for you all. Not so much. I mean, we put a lot of focus on our core markets and we want to make sure our core markets get back to growth. And um, we've got a lot in the pipeline in terms of innovation, our Golden Pilsner, our Flight by Yingling, which we're, we're super excited about. We've got some, you know, we had a collaboration last year with Hershey. So we're coming up on our, our Yingling Hershey Chocolate Porter uh, second year. Are you going to do that fall. again? Yeah. So we're, you know, we're, we're focused on, on those things and, and kind of the way COVID has, has hit hit the world. We, we really had to stay, take a step back and, and focus on the opportunities that are right in front of us. So I, I understand where... Uh, flight came from. Uh, we're seeing obviously the rise in the the, the low cal, uh, low carb beers. Uh, Michelob Ultra has been uh, rising through the, the the most popular ranks over the last couple of years, and uh, it sort of seems to be uh, the new trend of uh, you know promoting a, a healthier lifestyle uh, when it comes to to, to drinking beer. Um, the 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 Pilsner though, I, I'm I'm curious as to how that was created and what niche you saw for that, especially given, you know, the success of Lager. Yeah, Pilsner adds a little bit of a different flavor profile to our core brands. We feel like our Lager, Light Lager, Black and Tan, Black and Tan, they all kind of kind of play in that that same circle. Whereas Golden Pilsner, we look at it as refreshment style, uh, more for outdoor activities, social activities, being outside. Um, and that's that's the play we put on that. And if if you look at the flavor profile and how it was formulated, it's a, a slightly more astringent, drying, um, different type of, of bitterness from the hops. So so I think it's it's capturing a different consumer for different um, you know different appearances, um, other than rather than with our, our our core three brands: lager, light lager, black and tan. 
can we talk about black and tan for just a second? Because it it, it 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 is such a a throwback for me uh, in thinking of you know um, hanging out with 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 my grandfather at a at a at a local bar and you know uh, black and tan usually meant the the combination of two different beers you know a, a stout floated on top of a a, a lager or vice versa I guess um, but what is the recipe like what what is Yingling black and tan. So black and tan, it's a blended product. So what yeah. it takes is our, our, our premium beer, um, which is a, a lighter Pilsner-style beer, um, and our dark-brewed porter. So we blend the two of those, and you know, we have that available in, in bottles, cans, kegs. and um, It's been one of our staple brands, and that, that was might have been the, the brand prior to Lager that really started to gained some awareness with consumers in the late 80s mm-hmm. um, outside of our local local county and our, our ter- local territory. Is, is there still a market for it today? I mean, you're, you're saying it's in the top three, but it, it's, it does seem, I don't know, it, it, it seems like it's, it's both, you know, timeless and I don't want to say dated because I, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think it is. I think it's a, it's a fun thing, but it, is it something that resonates with younger generation of yingling drinkers? I think so. I think so. It might be considered maybe like a, a throwback style brand, and and definitely with the collaboration that we have going with Hershey, it's it's rejuvenated it somewhat. Um, you know, we're we're super excited for the the Hershey chocolate porter to come out again this year, um, because last year we just limited to a certain portion of our our footprint. Just to it was our first ever collaboration with a another company, so we. We took we took slow steps um, to be sure it was a right partnership. So we're just excited that this year it'll be it'll be out in all of our all of our states. Um, it, it was it was interesting. I saw you know, and I heard a couple of people you know make mention that you know uh, in in the craft space right now there's uh, a lot of uh, pastry stouts. You know, people who are you know putting chocolate into their beers or donuts or or, or whatnot. Um, Yingling was one of the last brands that I think a lot of beer drinkers would think would do something like this. You know, putting candy into a, into a beer. H- how did that beer come about? Who who started that conversation and you know, how did it how did it evolve into you know, the product that that uh, that a lot of us had uh yeah, last year? That's Yeah, that's well that's a marketing question there. The marketing gurus will say oh, who started it first. But I think um, you know, I think they were very conservative going into it too because obviously Hershey's they, was. Um, yeah, our Hershey's was simply because you know they they cater candy to children, so they were they were very conservative and they they did their due diligence on their part and you know they're, they've got some great experts, food scientists that we our brewers have been working with over the last couple of years that um, you know they really hit a home run with the the flavor profile and the brand that we have uh, we have coming out. It really did taste like a Hershey bar um, uh, when when I had it. I, I was served it blind at one point and I. You know, had been reading about it in the in in, in the news, obviously, and uh, sort of immediately put it together as to what it was because it has that sort of unmistakable uh, Hershey chocolate taste. Um, was this like a, a, a syrup or powder, or were you guys actually just unshucking bars and throwing them in the mash? What what was the what was the process behind it? Yeah, so we use um, we use some of the the Hershey chocolate um, products that that they make, and then it's it's. It's worked in with our dark brewed porter, so it's our our original porter recipe, and then um, we use some of the Hershey ingredients to get that that chocolate flavor. You've been talking about uh, you know innovation um, and you know bringing new brands out. Um, 
obviously, you know, for a certain segment of, of drinkers, especially in the craft space, um, you know, hoppy beers are uh, the most sought after. And I know you all did a, a, a India Pale Lager um, a few years ago, and I'm not sure if that's still being made. It's not. That was part of our seasonal profile. So mm-hmm. we had our we had our IPL and then summer wheat and then Oktoberfest. So we would roll those three kind of around the calendar. And in some ways, we felt like seasonals were getting a bit diluted in the marketplace. So we stepped away from that. And now, obviously, the only seasonal we have out is our Oktoberfest. It's you know, it's the largest seasonal beer across the across the category. So, so we did discontinue the the IPL um, probably for for four or five years now. Yeah, but ha- has there been talk of getting back into the hop arena because there is, yeah, you know, I, 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 an incredibly hop forward beer. I mean, not just because I know hops are going into to, to the other beers you're making, but um, yeah. I don't. Is that something that's still sort of batted around? I I, I know it's well, yeah. Part of our profile, our beer profile, is we we have what's called a Lord Chesterfield Ale. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mm -hmm. that. It's more of a local brand. Um, We refer to it as a a heritage brand because it does go back to one of the original recipes back in the 1800s. So so I would characterize that as an American-style pale ale. It's definitely hop-forward. Uh, it is dry hopped. I think the BUs come in around a 30 or a 32. So it's not overly powerful from a hop point of view, but more so than any of our other brands. But and and obviously still being predominantly a lager brewery, um, I know sometimes that always doesn't translate into you know making IPAs in the way that um, you know consumers are looking for it these days. But um, I don't. Do you think we could ever see like a full Yingling IPA? As, as part of a, a regular portfolio, or is that just, you know, I, I feel like brewers also have to be interested in making beers as well and have, you know, a good reason to make a beer. And I'm. Yeah. I mean, nothing's out of the, out of the question, but I think what we're focused on right now is our newest uh, brand, the flight by Yingling, um, really getting that rolled out after a bit of a sluggish start during, during COVID. And we've got these 16 ounce cans coming out and uh, early next year, we'll have it in 12 ounce, 12 pack cans. So that's, that's really our focus for the short term. As we've used the word a few times and, or I have, and and, and you, you mentioned the category as well. Um, Early on, you you described the brewery as a family owned and independent Um, and independent has been a, uh, a a big word uh, used by uh, brewers that are not, ABI uh, over over the last couple of years, but there there's a change in the Brewers Association's definition as to craft a couple of years ago after um, you know some breweries that were also generationally owned uh, like yours uh, made a, a a pretty loud noise about it. Um, to to my knowledge, I haven't really heard you know too much about your brewery embracing or even saying much about the craft moniker. Um, is is craft something that you all think about when it comes to yingling and the brewery or is it just like a you know nice designation that somebody else gave you well i think when you when you talk about craft beer it's an adjective it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people and you know to me personally you you mentioned independence and and that's a big factor in it you know it has to go with the the spirit that's been embodied by our brewery since we began brewing in 1829 and um at the core of who we are as a brand is is being independent and unique 
And you know, I also when I think of craft, I think of I think of pride too. It's it's brewers and and operators and you know everybody involved in the whole supply chain process of of taking pride in what what they do and contributing to to DG Yingling being America's oldest brewery. Um, and you know, it's it's our traditions and our beer that are steeped in that kind of entrepreneurial spirit that makes craft beer so different and and attractive to consumers. Was uh, Jace Marty from Shells uh, wrote a pretty impassioned letter to the Brewers Association's board a couple couple years ago, and uh, some other breweries kind of signed on on it. W- was that something that the brewery that your brewery was interested in at the time of being designated as craft when you know the National Association was saying that you weren't? Uh, we're we're honored to to have that that moniker and and to be named under that umbrella. But uh, you know we just continue to to display the, the the cultures and the values that we've had for 191 years, and and the fact that we we are attractive to consumers and we're sought after by consumers. That's you know that's what's important to us. You, you bring up this this sought after by consumers, and I think it's it's a the the longer a place is around, um, you know, the more uh, you know, a, a history sort of grows. And uh, every once in a while, something will pop up in my news feed that uh, somebody is boycotting your brewery again. If it's uh, uh, union issues from, from, from years ago, uh, or even in the 2016 election when your father seemingly uh, endorsed then-candidate Trump and people are saying, oh, we're going we're gonna to boycott the brewery. Do, do those threats or those stories ever bear reality to, to you all? Like, do you actually see the impact of, of people saying that? Or is this just something that makes headlines in certain places for a few minutes and then kind of disappears? You know, I think first and foremost is we're not a political organization. We're not a political business. Um, what we strive to do is find opportunities to to create opportunities for our consumers to discover what's unique about our brand, um, launching new brands and staying focused on innovation and our quality products. And, you know, I think with the longevity that we have, I don't know that we would be here for 191 years if, if we weren't doing the right things. You know, it, 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 it was interesting, though, because, you know, you're saying you're not political. And I, and I, I think that, you know, by and large, uh, you know, brewers lived by that for, for a long time. Uh, when the president's son visited in, in, in 2016, uh, leading up to the campaign, it was sort of this striking moment where, you know, politics did seem to enter into a small business. And, and in the last four years or so, uh, we've seen a lot of breweries of, of all sizes become, you know, politically active and taking, um, you know, political stances. And, you know, I, I think there's, you know, curiosity on the, the behalf of the consumers as to where, you know, companies stand. Um, you know, as, as you get ready to sort of take on, you know, this 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 ownership role, you know, down the line, um, is there a thought as to where the brewery would stand on issues, or you know, when you might want to get involved in you know certain you know social or political or you know life moments that are happening? I think what's most important is being able to connect with fans and consumers, and that's you know that's really been a top priority for us now, really more than ever. And we want to, we have to be creative and, and find new ways to connect with those consumers with our brand. And we've been 
you know, we've been doing some of that through social media, um, live stream activations, and we've, you know, we've brought on a couple different brand ambassadors this year to, you know, to really promote some of our, our newer brands and, um, you know, ones that we already have out, have, have had for several years. Um, you know, we have a, a country music star, Lauren Elena, who's our flight brand ambassador. We have, um, we have a celebrity chef, Kelsey Bernard Clark, who has teamed up with my sister to host a cooking class online. You know, consumers can learn how to make beer mac and cheese using our famous, you know, our traditional lager. So, so I think those are the those are the routes we're going to keep that connection with our consumers. When you think about some of these, you know, uh, relationships or you know the the the, the live streaming as well, I, I imagine there's got to be a challenge of being 191 years old um, and appearing young and, and, and modern and trying to connect to, uh, you know, a whole consumer base, uh, you know, that has come up with, you know, real choice. You know, you're, you're saying there's just, uh, you know, over a hundred or so breweries. Uh, when your father took over the business, you all are going to take over when, you know, there's 8,000 or 10,000 or, or, or whatever in the country. Um, is there a challenge of being, the oldest brewery in America, but also, you know, still talking to today's Gen Z that, that that's coming up? I think, uh, no, I don't think there's a challenge being America's oldest brewery. I think it's a tremendous opportunity and it's a story that nobody else can tell. And we, we do everything we can to tell that story and, and sell our, our values and our culture and why it is we've been, been as successful as we have for so long and it it goes back to the the perseverance and the resiliency and and the generations before us being able to work through prohibition and the great depression and and world wars and and where we are now with with the younger generation i think these brand ambassadors are are very helpful in getting us to connect with that younger generation we've got some we've got our corporate social responsibility where we where we connect to our communities that have been you know, so instrumental in getting us to where we are today. So, so I think giving back to the communities is is a big plus in helping to connect with these the younger generation. As we start to wrap up here, and I'm curious as to, um, you know, your father took the business, uh, and it was at one point, and he's leaving it at at, at another. Um, what does success look like? Do you think for 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 you, and I'll ask you to, I guess, to speak on behalf of your sisters as well, since they'll be uh, uh, taking this mantle with you. Um, what does success look like when it's time for the seventh generation to to take the reins? Well, I think you know our, our dad has certainly left left his mark on not only our company but also the industry as a whole. And you know, not to speak for my sisters, but as a sixth generation, I think it's up to us to maintain our foundation as America's oldest brewery um, while also building upon it and then innovating for the future, uh, for future generations of, of not just ownership, but employees and consumers. And we've done that over the past several years now with our, our Golden Pilsner, the Chocolate Porter, and now, of course, the Flight by Yingling. The the, the brewery has changed names uh, uh, over its uh 191 years uh, with four daughters taking over. Do you think we could see a a change in the company name as well? 
<laughs> That's funny. We get that question a lot. Yeah, the company did. Well, we started out as the Eagle Brewery, mm-hmm. um, and then when the Eagle Brewery was destroyed by a fire, it transitioned to to DG Yingling, and then DG Yingling and Son when the the second generation came online. So again, nothing's nothing's out of uh, nothing's impossible. I, I you know I think it could be uh, inspiring in a lot of ways. So, mm. uh, well, Jen, thanks so much for for taking the time today. I I, I really appreciate it. You got it. Thanks for talking with you, John. That's Jennifer Yingling, the VP of Operations at DG Yingling and Sun Brewery in Pennsylvania and in Florida. Their Oktoberfest is out now on shelves, and that Hershey beer, as you heard, is on its way yet again. My thanks to her for taking the time to talk with me. Before we go, a reminder that this show is produced by Beer Edge. Check out BeerEdge.com and subscribe to the newsletter, and also download the Beer Edge podcast, hosted by Andy Crouch, with new episodes every week. And check out Steal This Beer and the BYO Nano podcast. And please don't forget to go onto Apple Podcasts or wherever you download and leave a review of this show. If you have questions, suggestions, or guests you'd like to hear, you can email me at John Hall, that's J O H N H O L L, at beeredge.com, or reach out on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Nate Schwaber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed the logo, and my thanks so much to you for listening. I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'll be back again to drink beer and to think beer. <laughs>